We're going to be in Daniel chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Daniel chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. So, last week we looked at just the first two verses in Daniel, and those two verses really do set the, the historical context for the book of Daniel, but they also set the theological backdrop for Daniel. And so as we go into Daniel, the theological and historical backdrop is that God's people were in Babylon in exile because they had rejected God's authority. They had turned away from God and they had instead realigned their lives to conform to the surrounding nations and worship the false gods of the surrounding nations. But God was with his people, just like we sang. He was with them in the fire. He was with them in the waters, holding back the flood, etc. God was with his people, and even though they were rebelling against him and essentially spitting in his face as their creator, he loved them, he was accomplishing his purposes in and through and around them, and he was ultimately bringing his promises to fulfillment through a Jewish man who would be born many years later named Jesus Christ, the Son of God who is God. And so one of those purposes of God was to preserve a remnant. If he wiped out Israel, then he could not fulfill his promises to Israel. The Messiah could not be born to Israel if Israel was gone. So he was preserving a remnant, uh, saving them in the midst of Babylon, in the belly of the beast, so to speak. And uh, and that's what we're going to look at today. So today we're going to get to meet four of our main characters in the book of Daniel. We're going to meet four of the Jewish teenagers that represented that remnant that God was holding close and keeping safe throughout the exile. And uh, speaking of teenagers, this is kind of going to be a theme today. Uh, When I say teens, this could also in our culture be tweens. I feel like adulthood, or I should say I feel like adolescence is moving to an earlier time to start, and it's moving to a later time to finish in our culture. So when I say teens, just think tweens, think preteens, think all these different age groups kind of leading up until adulthood. And so, did anyone see the headlines that came out this last week on teenagers? Just raise your hand. They hit all the major headlines. Uh, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, I mean, all the major news outlets were covering this. But on the eve of Valentine's Day, the Centers for Disease Control, who track the mental health and well-being of American teenagers... They released a report that dropped like a bomb on our country, and everybody's been talking about it since. But they released a report on the mental health of American teens. And guys, I went in and read the report, and it is absolutely heartbreaking. Uh, It's heart-wrenching to just read what's being self-reported by the teens in our country right now. So the CDC found, among other things, And this gets to the graphic that's going to come up here. The CDC found that there is a 60% increase in the teenage young women who reported persistent feelings of sadness and hopelessness. So in other words, in 2021, which this this is a year old, this data, 57% of U.S. teen girls felt persistently sad or hopeless in 2021, and the numbers were even more troubling for the teens who identified as LGBTQ+. And that's really heart-wrenching, because that was even more distressing, more troubling. 
And so what are we to make of this? Christians, church, when we get news like this, it's being self-reported by our young people in this country. What are we to do with that? And I think as Christians, we should feel absolutely brokenhearted for these, these teens. And by the way, the numbers were up for boys too, but not as staggeringly as it was for teenage girls. So first and foremost, we, we should be heartbroken. But listen, we should also realize and keep remembering that this is ultimately a spiritual problem. This is not a social or psychological or uh, schooling or opportunities issue, first and foremost. First and foremost, this is a spiritual problem, and the only solution is a spiritual one. And the only spiritual solution is for our young people to stop looking to worldly things to things of this earth. I don't care what it is, whatever it is, wherever it is, they're looking for hope and fulfillment and contentment and peace and value and purpose and meaning and all those other things that our hearts cry out for as human beings because that's how God made us with that God-shaped hole in our hearts. And we go to all these other places and all we find is garbage that turns to dust in our hands. And you wonder why our teenagers are so brokenhearted and so hopeless and so sad, it's because of that. To look to worldly things for hope and meaning and value, only to be despaired and distraught when you don't find it. And you keep searching and you keep looking and you never find it. Instead of turning back to God, turning to Christ for the hope of forgiveness a reconciled relationship with our Creator who wants us to know Him as Heavenly Father and the promise of eternal life and all those other things we're looking for, the value, the meaning, the purpose, the contentment, the peace, the love, the recognition of who we truly are. And furthermore, we need to realize that the world is targeting our young people. Guys, you don't walk away from statistics like that without recognizing that there is a particular focus or target on our young people, spiritually speaking. If we close our eyes to the reality of spiritual warfare and we just blame COVID or we just blame whatever else besides the spiritual issue that we know is is happening, then we won't be well-equipped to fight the spiritual battles for the sake of our tweens, our preteens, our teens, our young people. Guys, if we don't recognize that it's spiritual in nature, we're not going to fight with the right weapons for our, our young people. Scripture reminds us in Ephesians 6, verse 12, it says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. This isn't a struggle against your rebellious teen. This isn't a struggle against the people up at school or the the, the peer group or whatever else. Guys, first and foremost, this is a spiritual battle. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's where the battle is waged, first and foremost. Our big idea for today is that our teens are being targeted and transformed by the world. So we have to fight for them. Not just our own kids. 
We have to fight for all of them. Today's passage is a really great example of how worldly forces target and attempt to transform our young people. The teens in Daniel's day, guys, we're talking about the 6th century B.C., 2,500 years ago, those teens weren't so different than today's teens. And the world certainly hasn't changed much since then. So first, the world targets our teens. That's our first big point for this sermon. The world targets our teens. And to be clear, when I say the world, the cosmos in Greek, that could be used in different ways. I'm speaking of that in the way that Scripture talks about the world as the ungodly multitude, the whole mass of men and women alienated from God and therefore hostile to the cause of Christ, this fallen human system that rejects God and seeks to um, establish us in personal autonomy as our own gods. That's what I mean when I talk about the world. So according to Scripture, this world is one of our greatest enemies, along with Satan and what the Bible calls the flesh, or our own sinful nature, our own sinful desires that are working in us. Even in Christians, we have that, that old sin nature hanging around. The world wants to turn teens away from God and use them to further ungodly ends. The world doesn't just want to turn teens away from God. It wants to actually employ them in ungodly plans and purposes and worldly ends. And we see this dramatically depicted in today's passage. So look at the first four verses with me. It's Daniel 1, I'm sorry, uh, Daniel 1, 3 through 4, the first two verses. Then the king, that is Nebuchadnezzar, we learned about him last week, told Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, this is kind of his head guy, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom there was no impairment. Youths, that can refer to helpless babies all the way up to, you know, young men who could fight in the the army back then, okay? So you have to look at the context for what we're talking about. The reason we say they're teenagers is because in ancient Persia, both the Persians and, by extension, the other world empires in Mesopotamia, the Babylonians, etc., they would target 14 and 15-year-olds, men in that context, 14 and 15-year-old men, and then they would bring them through three years of training until they were 17 or 18 years old, and then they would send them off to do whatever they were trained to do. And so that 14 to 17, 18-year-old time frame is, was when the ancient peoples targeted young people to form them into usefulness for whatever the empire's or kingdom's goals were. So youths in whom there was no impairment, no defect, that's sacrifice language from Leviticus, who were good-looking, suitable for instruction in every kind of expertise, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability to serve in the king's court. So the king of Babylon, the most powerful man in the world at that time, wanted to strengthen his worldly kingdom and and retain his power over all these different nations and kingdoms. So he wanted to recruit out of all these nations and kingdoms the most promising young people to serve his purposes in maintaining and expanding his kingdom. 
He wanted them to serve as his wise counselors in his court, his courtiers, and and as diplomats who would know the the local languages and customs of the peoples he had conquered and be able to act as as diplomats on behalf of the emperor. Uh, he, He wanted them so that he could maintain control over people just like the Israelites. He could take Daniel and his friends and equip them in Babylon and then use them to dominate their own people. So the king was looking for four characteristics in this passage. He was looking for social status. He was looking for attractiveness. He was looking for intelligence. And he was looking for a relational wisdom or a way of minding your manners, so to speak. So first of all, the king wanted to know where they lived. He wanted teens who were living in the right zip codes, we would call it, right? He wanted the ones living in palaces and mansions, and he specifically wanted some of the royal family. Those are uh, the youths in the line of King David, from the family of David and his, uh, his heirs, and also some of the nobles. And, and these are the people that had status in the eyes of their peers. He wanted people that could influence other people. And so he wanted to know where they lived. He also wanted to know how good they looked. I mean, it's right here in the text. He wanted young men who were strong and healthy. That's what we get from that no impairment, no physical impairment. But also handsome, beautiful, physically attractive men is what he wanted. The king also wanted to know how well they learned. How well were they going to take in all this, all this training, all this information? He wanted the absolute brightest and most intellectually accomplished young men of that culture, of that day. And then finally, the king wanted to know how well they listened, how well they obeyed. In verse 4, he's looking for young men who had the ability to serve in the king's court. That literally meant they had the power to stand before the king in his palace. And that basically meant that they had to be attentive. We would call it relational IQ or Is that what it's called? Relational IQ, relational wisdom. It's basically that they were able to adapt their behavior, their manners to fit the needs of the court of the king. Their their personality would be pleasing to the king. They knew how to act in that context, basically. So the king wanted the most influential teens so that he could use their influence to further his own worldly purposes. Now, I know a lot of you guys have read Andrew Peterson's Wingfeather Saga. Who's read that? Okay, we read it as a family. I cried like a baby at the end of book four. What? Oh, gosh, am I going to ruin this for everybody? I hope not. Okay, y'all can shush me if I... Spoiler alert, okay? Uh, You don't know if it was joy. You don't know if I was sad. You have no idea why I was crying. I might have just had a really emotional day, and we were reading... Anyway, we read those books, and they're fantastic, and I recommend them. Andrew Peterson's a wonderful artist. He's a musician. He's a writer. Okay, so in that book, in the first book, I'm not spoiling anything. It's like on page two, all right? Shushers. Um, It starts with this spooky black carriage that has these sort of monster things attending to it. And and this black carriage freaked our kids out. Uh, It's really spooky, but it comes in the middle of the night to carry away children somewhere. And our kids were like, this is freaky. I don't know if we want to read the rest of this. So there's this black carriage, and initially you have no idea what's happening to these kids, okay? But eventually you find out, 
now I'm like all second guessing myself on my illustration. Eventually you find out that the, the, the evil king wants them for certain particular purposes of his, and that's why he's taking them. Okay. All right, am I good? Am I good? Okay. We do this with our cousins. We spoil books and movies and, you know, Luke, I'm your father. It's like those moments, you know. Um, So one of the saddest moments in the book, I'm going to go ahead and say this. It broke my heart because I thought, well, you know, the, the thing that's happening to these kids is just being foisted upon them and they're being forced. But in an amazing way, Andrew Peterson, the author, in reflecting reality, he looks at how these children are separated from their families and their homes, and they're put in situations under great pressure, uh, encouragement, peer pressure, threats, promises of whatever they want to make a decision with their own will to accept what the evil king had for them. And when I, when I read that, it hit me that that's, that's what happens. Like, no human being is forced to turn away from God. No human being is forced to worship themselves, which really just means worshiping Satan, stealing glory from God. But through all these pressures and circumstances and peer pressure and promises of all these things, all the things I talked about earlier, I promise you'll be content. I promise you'll know what your identity truth is. I promise you'll recognize what your value is. I promise you'll have truth. I promise, I promise, I promise. With their own wills, not even understanding what's going on, they make a decision. They make a decision to turn away from God. And they make a decision to turn towards whatever else. And I just think it's beautiful how he characterized that in there. So we see this evil king's evil minions pressuring them, promising all sorts of things, until each one ultimately makes the decision to reject who he writes in the book about as the maker and to reject the way that the maker has made them in order to gain that thing that they're hungry for, that thing that they, the power and the contentment, whatever it is that they are promised. But ultimately, They're just enlisted into the service of the evil king. And so the king's recruiting strategy is to forcefully remove these young people from their homes and their families, and then to cunningly convince them to serve his purposes with the promise of getting whatever it is that they want. And so this fictional tyrant in the Wingfeather books was targeting young people because he could mislead them more easily, especially when he separated them from the people that loved him most, from their homes and their families. And he could get them out on their own. And in the midst of confusion and confusing circumstances and pressures and promises and everything else, he could mislead them more easily. He didn't want adults who were already kind of formed in their you know, beliefs and values and, and everything else. And you know what? King Nebuchadnezzar was not a fictional character. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon was a real historical figure who also recruited promising young Jewish men to further his own purposes. And both of those characters, the fictional one and the historical one, ultimately reflect the satanic strategy. Satan is real. 
the satanic strategy to target our young people and employ them as servants of the world, of his world, of what the Bible calls the kingdom of darkness. And Jesus calls him the prince of this world on more than one occasion. And there's no doubt that what Satan wants, he does want the best and brightest. He does want the most talented poets and playwrights and authors. He wants the most uh, intellectually uh, competent scientists and inventors and engineers. He wants people that can give the most stirring speeches, the orators of our age. Yes, he wants all those people because they're influential and he can turn many, many more others to away from God through their efforts. But guess what? Satan will take anyone he can get. Anybody, anybody created in the image of God who he can convince to turn away from God and he can steal God's glory in that way, the roaring lion is prowling in the tall grass and he'll take anyone. <clears throat> the fiercest fighting, I guarantee you this, kids that are growing up out there in the secular world Kids that are growing up being discipled by parents who say God doesn't exist and truth is relative and whatever else people, or maybe they don't say anything. And maybe by not saying anything, their kids grow up thinking, well, God's obviously not real. My parents never talk about him, right? That's not where the thickest fighting is. You realize that. Satan has limited resources. He's not infinite and omnipotent like God is. He has to be strategic with his resources, okay? And so he's not going to go and fight for, you know, that kid being raised in the atheist home, right? I tell you, God's going to go fight for that kid. He's going to put the toughest fighting in the homes of Christian parents. He's going to put the toughest fighting in the lives of the youths who are growing up in the context of the church to love and serve the Lord Jesus Christ, who are being told about the good news of the gospel, that Jesus came and died for our sins so that we could be forgiven and not be righteous because we're inherently so great. We're rotten dirt bags. And he came and died for us anyway so that we could be clothed in his righteousness and so that we could be established in a forever relationship with the author of life himself in the kingdom of God for all eternity. And it's the kids that are hearing that message that he's going to come at with the fiercest waves of fighting. So let's pray for the spiritual protection of our young people and let's lean into discipling our young people to help equip them to stand firm in their faith, as Paul talks about in Ephesians 6. In the day of evil, when that day comes, not if, that they can stand firm and not be toppled and wear that armor of God that's so memorable, even as they're being targeted for spiritual attack. Those fiery darts are coming at our young people thick, and they're sticking, and they're burning, and they're destroying. So our teens are being targeted by worldly forces so that they will serve false gods and worldly ends. So the second thing I want to focus on today is that the world tries to transform our teens. It's not that the world and the devil want to just kind of convince our young people to turn away from God. They want to absolutely transform our teens. Every human being is created in the image of God. Did you know that? Did you know we have purpose? We had purpose in the mind of God even before he created us. 
What is our purpose as human beings, as image bearers, that provides us with the inherent dignity and value of being human, created in the image of God? Guys, our purpose in this life is actually pretty simple. It's to be in relationship with our Creator, in perfect, harmonious, loving embrace of our Creator, and to glorify Him, and to enjoy Him, and to be fulfilled by Him, and to reflect His glory into all creation. That's what we're created for. That's the only thing that's going to fill up our hearts and souls, is by living out that purpose that Christ made possible for us to live out, even despite our sin. And so this is exactly what God's enemies want to prevent. In the Old Testament, God's people, remember what Israel was supposed to do? Just that. Just what I said. Remember, Adam and Eve messed up. They had to go. They they were exiled out of the garden. God reestablished a garden, the tabernacle with all the fruit and animals and everything, the place where God would dwell with his people. And he made Israel the kingdom of priests. And they were going to mediate God's presence and that relationship with God through the sacrificial system and the priesthood, all of which look forward to Christ and his ultimate sacrifice. But they were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. They were supposed to show the whole world what it was like to be in relationship with their holy God and to invite them to worship him and glorify him. And they failed at that, just like Adam and Eve did. Just like all of us would, which is why Jesus had to do it perfectly. So, so God's people, the Israelites, Daniel and, and his friends, they were supposed to reflect God's glory to the nations. But in today's passage, we see a king of the nations, you know, with some backlash. So now it's not Israel reflecting God's glory to the nations. Now it's an empire of nations and its king coming after Israel to take those image bearers, to take those, those, those teenagers out of God's people and steal God's glory by transforming them into vessels for the king, for the nations. So let's look again at our passage, and I want you to see, I'm going to reread the first part and skip the things we looked at and go to the second part, but we're going to see how the Babylonians tried to transform these these young Jewish men into servants of the pagan king. So let me read this, and you all look at your Bibles or your Bible apps. It's okay, too. Uh, Daniel, chapter 1, verses 3 through 7, says, Then the king, that's Nebuchadnezzar, told Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel. I'm going to skip ahead to to the second part of verse 4. And the king ordered Ashpenaz to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. That's basically the literature and language of the Babylonian Empire. Okay. The king also allotted for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he himself drank. And he ordered that they be educated. That word for educated is a word that gets used for rearing a child, for raising up, nourishing a child to raise them up to greatness. So they're to be uh, educated, reared for three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. And to Daniel, he assigned the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. 
So basically, the Babylonians attempted to transform these young Jewish men by going to work on three things. Their attitudes, their appetites, and their affections. So we're going to look at all three of those. Attitudes, appetites, affections. So first, their minds were supposed to be filled with the cultural ideas of the day in order to reform their attitudes, how they felt about life and truth and the world and themselves and God and everything else. So, so the king says, fill up their minds with Babylonian cultural ideas and worldview and perspectives. And the king wanted them to be steeped in that Babylonian culture. Yes, he wanted them to know the culture language of the Hebrews. That plays into his plan. But now he's going to, for three whole years, it's like middle school, he's going to steep them in the culture of the Babylonians. The language of the Babylonians, the, 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 the literature, the philosophy, the theology, the, the, I mean, they read like tax documents and stuff. I mean, whatever they have, they're going to read and they're going to be so steeped in Babylonian culture, it's going to saturate them. They were to learn the literature and the language of the Babylonian empire. And they housed that in these vast libraries in ancient Babylon, these vast libraries with cuneiform, uh, Akkadian writings and, uh, uh, Persian, Aramaic, and all these different things, and they were going to learn all these languages so that they could take in all this information, okay? And then next, their bellies were to be filled by physical indulgences, the delicacies and delights of, uh, of the king himself in order to reform their appetites. He wanted them to have an appetite for the, the rich foods and the fine wines provided by the king himself. And that provision, yes, it was meant to keep them healthy. We see that later on. But it was also meant to increase their dependence on the provision of the king. I don't depend on God. God never gave me this fine wine and this marbled ribeye, right? No, God had me eating like, I don't know, vegetables and stuff, right? But the king, he's giving me really good stuff. He's satisfying my desires, my appetites. And so he wanted to fill their bellies with these physical indulgences and luxuries. And that was supposed to make them not just feel more dependent on the king, but also increase their sense of pleasure and privilege. Because what hooks a kid better than providing him with some pleasure and a feeling of privileged status among a community, right? And then finally, their hearts were to be filled with spiritual indifference in order to reform their spiritual affections. You see, they'd come from an Israelite culture, a Hebrew culture. And if you read the Hebrew scriptures for two seconds, the first thing you're going to notice is that that culture emphasized the reality that there is one and only true God, the living God of Israel. And that we as his people, whether Israelite or Gentile, we were made in his image to worship him and him alone and we are to give him our whole hearts, our whole minds, all of our soul, all of our strength, as Jesus pointed out in the Gospels. That's right out of the Hebrew Scriptures. And so he is supposed to be the only legitimate object of our spiritual service and worship. They were to love him with everything that they were. Even the names, the names, Daniel, Hananiah. Mishael and Azariah, those were reminders of God and his character. Those names were literally derived. Two of them were derived from uh, the name Yahweh, the covenant name of God that we see in the Torah. The other two names were based on Elohim, which is another name for God in the Old Testament. 
And, and out of those four Jewish teenagers, their names collectively represented two of God's names paired with four characteristics of God, his character, his nature, his goodness. Daniel's brings to mind God's judgment, that God is ultimately the one who judges between right and wrong, righteous and unrighteous, good and bad, that he's the judge. Uh, Hananiah and the others, they, they uh, uh, brought to mind the supremacy of God. Uh, Mishael, just like Michael, my middle name, uh, means like who, who is like God? In other words, God is supreme. Who's like God? It's a question. And it's meant to bring into mind God's supremacy, uh, God's graciousness. That's Hannah, Hananiah, grace. Aya is where we get uh, one of the names from God, Yahweh, right? So grace and Yahweh and God's graciousness, God's grace. Uh, the other one uh, is about God's helpfulness, that God helps. He, he is helping and he will help his people. And so to help these teenagers forget the God of Israel, what did the Babylonians do? I don't want you waking up every morning and hearing, God is gracious, God will help, God is judge. So what do they do? Change their names. What do they change them to? At least three different Babylonian gods. Nebo, Bel or Marduk, and Aku, the moon god. So three different pagan false gods and mixed in there, just like with their original names, are characteristics of the supremacy of those false gods and those false gods' ability to protect the king and others and the worthiness of those false gods to be served by people. And so the Babylonians used every means possible to transform four Jewish teenagers and conform them to the godless standards of Babylon and its king. And today the world is still attempting to press tweens, preteens, teens into a worldly mold. They face nonstop pressure, and it comes at them through screens, through conversations with peers, from teachers, administrators, guidance counselors, you name it. They're hearing these messages, this constant pressure to conform to worldly standards and cultural expectations. And really, it starts with just turn away from God. Just turn away from all that mythological garbage that you were raised in the church to believe, right? And free yourself from all that traditional nonsense, right? And so that's the pressure they're constantly under. And sadly, most young people don't even realize what's happening. And I know that's offensive to you young people in the room, but can I just tell you something, and every single adult in here will agree with me? When I was a preteen and a teenager, when I was in middle school and high school, I had no clue what was happening to me and around me and in my life and in my heart and in my mind. This isn't like, you know, poo-poo on you, you know? Oh, you guys are so silly. You're, you're so confused. No, this is a human problem. And we all faced it in different ways, in different measures. And so during my senior year at Westwood, I was awarded two senior superlatives. I was so proud of them at the time. You know what they were? Most original and biggest nonconformist. That was me. There's still a picture of me hanging. Kate, you can check this. Who else? Hannah, you've checked it. There's still a picture of me hanging up on the wall at Canyon Vista Middle School, a couple blocks down the road where Dahlia works 
wearing a demon skull, satanic worshiping goth rock band shirt on the back row of my school picture. That was me. And I won biggest nonconformist. At the time, I was so proud that people thought of me as original and unwilling to conform to other people's standards and the expectations of others. I thought that was so cool. In fact, that's one of the reasons I walked away from the church. I kicked Christianity to the curb at 16 years old, probably long before that in my heart, if I'm being honest with you, because I didn't want to be pressed into conformity to these traditions and expectations of these old people. And, right? uh, and so I kicked it to the curb. I didn't want... I didn't want to conform my beliefs and behavior to some external standard of someone else in terms of morality and righteousness. I wanted to remake myself, refashion myself into what I thought was my own image and likeness. I thought I was coming up with this amazingly original image to to kind of grant myself identity, to kind of give myself, right? But looking back, I can clearly see how my pride and my arrogance allowed me to be fooled into thinking that I wasn't conforming to any outside standards. Because you know what? I'm telling you the God's honest truth. I was probably the biggest conformist at Westwood High School. I was constantly trying to become what I thought other people wanted me to be. Whether that's cool or smart or dangerous or funny or vulgar or whatever. In the confusion of my preteen and teenage years, I didn't realize how desperately I wanted to prove my value in the eyes of others. I, was, I had such a hole, a throbbing hole in my soul that I was looking to the eyes of others to fill up. Whether that was they hated me or they wanted to be like me or whatever. I just wanted the attention. I just wanted to feel like I had some sort of purpose, meaning, value in the eyes of others. And that search only left me hopeless and sad like so many teens today. And that's what the Centers for Disease Control is telling us. We should not be surprised. I didn't find my true value until I found Christ. And I grew up in the church but I was not a Christian because I thought it was just about good people. Go to a building with a steeple on it for an hour and a half on Sunday morning, and then you go live your life. Okay, I paid, I paid the tax. I gave you an hour and a half at this boring service, and now I'm going to go about my week and do whatever I want, right? I didn't understand what Christianity was. When I trusted in Christ when I was 23, in my early 20s, God absolutely reclaimed me and and then he began conforming me pulling me out of that worldly mold that i had been pressing myself into god bless you and he he began conforming me to the image of his son and conformity folks has never felt so good i would be honored to be called the biggest conformist if i could go back to high school if they knew that i was being conformed to christ my lord In my teens, my resistance to Christian discipleship left me wide open, vulnerable, susceptible to being conformed to this world. And I didn't even know it. And so I'm so thankful. I'm so grateful to God that he rescued me through Christ, that he chased after me, as we sang, and he returned me to my original purpose of loving and serving the Lord. 
and having inherent dignity and value as a human being made in the image of God, something nothing else could ever give me. And so, folks, it's important to realize that all of us are being pressured into conformity with the world. I mean, think about Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul writes, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in light of the mercies of God, to present your bodies, yes, your physical bodies, but your whole selves, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world. Old, young, I don't care. You're being tempted to be conformed to this world. That's why Paul says this. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. This passage is not just for adults. It's also for our young people. And just think of all the ways that they're being tempted to conform to this world. Social pressure from peers. You can look around. Every adult in here is going to shake their head. Did you experience social peer pressure when you were? Yes. Everyone, all you adults. Yes, right? This is a universal thing. Social pressure, social media. We didn't have that. That's like times 100 to what we experienced. But social media influence, hours of screen time with YouTube videos and TikTok and now chat GPT. You got a artificial intelligence telling you all about the world and yourself and God and everything else? Are you kidding me? And then some through secular educational models. You can even go to a school that says it's Christian and you might get a healthy dose of secularism. Back in Daniel's day, you had to learn Akkadian and sit in some ancient library with clay cuneiform tablets to fill your head with pagan perspectives and ideas, okay? And now all you need is a smartphone and a few minutes in the waiting room on TikTok or YouTube or whatever else. And I want to close by pointing out that Daniel and his friends were probably 14 or 15 years old. I talked about this back at the beginning. They're 14 or 15 years old when they were targeted for transformation in order to be conscripted into service for the king. And why do you think the Babylonians targeted a bunch of teenagers? What ancient wisdom was so profound that they knew about adolescence that they targeted 14 and 15 year olds? Folks, even the ancients understood that adolescence is the very best time to shape a person's attitudes, appetites, and affections. And nothing has changed in 2,500 years. In order to become an adult, all of us have to travel through the gauntlet of hormonal changes and physical changes and social pressures and growing desires for independence and new abstract thinking and all the rest. And our enemy understands the vulnerabilities of adolescence and he will continue over and over again to attack our young people for the purpose of turning their hearts away from God. He will not relent, especially if you're raising your kids in a Christian household, in the church, as we ought to. And that's why I am so incredibly grateful for people like Shelby Hughes, for people like Amanda, for people like Hannah, for people like Abby, who's not here today, who, who God has given a passion and a desire to step into the lives of our young women here at Wayside, our preteens, our tweens, our teenagers, 
and help come alongside not just them, but their parents and their families as we together as a Christian community raise our kids as they ought to be raised, as image bearers of the eternal, invisible, omnipotent, glorious God to live out the purpose of loving and serving the Lord. And as we do that and lock arms in that, praise God that he's given us people that see that as their gift and their passion. And I am so thankful for these people. God has blessed us incredibly to help provide spiritual protection. And I hope after this sermon you'll be praying for our young people all the time. But not just spiritual protection, also spiritual formation so that our young people will understand the importance, like I did not, of conformity to Christ and to equip our young people for a lifetime of service to the Lord. So next week we will see how those Jewish teens ultimately rejected worldly ways in order to embrace self-sacrificial service to the one true God in a world of pagan pleasures and increasing mounting pressures. And that's what we'll look at next week. Let's pray. Will you bow your heads with me?